Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm now back from my Christmas holiday in Mexico and would like to say a huge thank you to all my new Patreon supporters, but especially the new ones, Jay Browner, Renee Allen, Lucky Jean, welcome back Lucky Jean, Llama Bug, Tidjilika Metzger Kirsten, Anne and Paul Smith. I really appreciate all your support and I hope you enjoy all the exclusive content. A bumper bonus episode, number 11, is now written and it will be uploaded this week. Today's case was brought to my attention by a listener to the show, Elizabeth Essex. Elizabeth lives in Nuneaton and although not born when the case took place, she's heard and read lots about it. And it's not surprising it interested Elizabeth so much, as has all the elements of a fascinating story. Sex, murder, money, deceit, and the theme I talk about so much, the reality of life being very different to the image portrayed. Thank you, Elizabeth, and I hope you enjoy hearing this episode. But before we start, I am delighted that this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Support this podcast and head to their website at hellofresh.co.uk and use the promo code TRUE to get 50% off your first two boxes. HelloFresh is a great company which delivers fuss-free recipes with the exact pre-proportioned fresh ingredients you need to cook them from scratch. I'm a vegan and they cater for vegetarian, dairy and gluten-free diets and there's absolutely no waste as the ingredients are pre-measured. Let me confirm that the vegetarian options I've eaten have been absolutely delicious, especially the risotto, which in many restaurants as a vegan can be a bit dull, but from HelloFresh was awesome, even with me cooking it. And as, let's say, a developing chef, the instructions were easy for me to follow so my family could spend more time enjoying meals rather than planning and preparing them. So try HelloFresh today and get 50% off your first two boxes by heading to hellofresh.co.uk and using the promo code TRUE. Support this podcast and get fantastic food delivered to your door. What more could you want? That's hellofresh.co.uk and the promo code is TRUE. Let's put today's case into some context by looking at the news and the music of the time. September 1994 was certainly a mixed month for music albums in the UK. The number one spot was held by Prince with Come and Oasis with Definitely Maybe. Are you an Oasis fan? I am. And I'm super excited as I'm seeing Liam Gallagher in Manchester this summer, which should be a lot of fun. However, to balance those great albums at number one, also in the top spot that month was The Best of Wet 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 Part 1. You mean there was a part two? The number one single in the US was Boys to Men with I'll Make Love With You. In the news, this was the month that the Bulgarian government fell. Newlyweds Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley opened the 11th MTV Awards. Andre Agassi and Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, yes, she of the grunt, were victorious at the French Open tennis. And all 28 baseball club owners voted to cancel the rest of the 1994 season. On the small screen, Friends and ER both debuted this year, and the big screen saw the release of the Shawshank Redemption. 
Today's case takes us to the county of Warwickshire in the centre of England. Meriden is a small village around 12 miles from Nuneaton, where the acclaimed author George Eliot was born in 1819. Indeed, in 1858, she published a novel, Scenes of Clerical Life, which focused on life in Nuneaton. Bonneville Close in Meriden is part of a relatively new estate where rows of similar-looking houses have been built on the quiet residential streets. In September 1994, Carolyn Gordon Wardell lived in an attractive two-storey red-brick cottage with pretty leaded pane windows and a neat garden. A ceramic butterfly caught the eye near the front door on a wooden beam. Carol Heslop had been born in nearby Coventry on the 26th of April 1955. Carol was a quiet, likeable an efficient lady who had once taught children at a local Sunday school. She met her husband, Gordon Waddell, in 1979, when they were both members of the same 10-pin bowling league. They married in 1982 at Holy Trinity Church in Coventry, but although they both wanted children, this didn't happen for them. So when we joined the story in 1994, they were living alone in their home. Shortly after they were married... Carol began working as a cashier at the Woolwich Building Society. And in 1992, hard-working Carol received a promotion to assistant branch manager of the Woolwich branch in Nuneaton. Gordon too was ambitious and he worked in the logistics industry. Since early 1994, he'd worked as a warehouse manager for a Leicestershire logistics company called Veng UK. He had taken this role as there was potential for a quick promotion to the board, although this was yet to happen. His CV demonstrates how he saw himself, where he said the following in his opening statement. A first-class leader with excellent communication skills. Highly motivated, energetic character with a hands-on management style. Creative and visionary. A versatile achiever. Disciplined, strategic, analytical approach with a proven track record in warehousing and distribution. Now aged 41, Carol had been Gordon's first serious girlfriend and the first woman that Gordon had slept with. As far as their friends and family knew, despite the disappointment of being unable to have children, the couple led happy lives. There was no known violence or infidelity in the marriage and they were known as a friendly, quiet couple who kept themselves to themselves. They socialised with a variety of friends, mainly having them to dinner at their home. And this is exactly what they did on the night of Saturday the 10th of September 1994. A friend of Carol's from work came to the house for her husband and the four had an enjoyable time. As the other couple drove off in their car, they saw Gordon and Carol on the doorstep, waving them off as they always did. But this was the last time that anyone except for Gordon would see Carol Wardell alive. It was two days later when a passing motorist spotted Carol Wardell's body on a grass verge at the side of the road. Police cordoned off the scene and began searching for clues in the long grass. Police at the scene said the body appeared to have been dumped from a vehicle and they later confirmed that Carol had been strangled. One clue they did find there was a blue sandal by the body. This was particularly significant as another identical sandal had been found at another crime scene in Uneaton that morning. When staff arrived for work at the Uneaton branch of the Woolwich, 
they found that the office had been ransacked, the safe opened and papers were everywhere along with the blue sandal. Armed police and a police helicopter were called and sent to the Bilm Society and police entered to carry out a search. £15,000 in cash and building society checkbooks had been stolen from the strong room. Police discovered that at 5.22am that morning, a computer at the Woolwich was accessed using Carol Wardell's security code and they quickly realised that the lady found dead in the lay-by was Carol Wardell. Police officers rushed to the family home and just before 2pm, the two officers who arrived at the door saw the milk on the step and when they went to the door, they heard muffled cries from inside. When they entered the house, they found Gordon Waddell lying on the floor in his pants. He was gagged with a strip of cloth in his mouth and tied to a refuse sack holder with his legs over the horizontal bar and his wrists bound around a plastic ratchet-type tie. He was in a state of some distress and it looked as though he'd been attacked. The ambulance was called and Gordon was taken to hospital where he kept asking for his wife Carol. Eventually Gordon's father broke the news to Gordon that Carol was dead and Gordon was devastated. It was 24 hours later before he could be interviewed and Gordon explained what had happened in the lead up to the murder. On the Sunday the couple had enjoyed a quiet, relaxing day. After dinner, Carol put on a video, Delta Force, and asked Graham to post a letter for her. He assumed it was a work letter, so rather than stop at the local post box where there was no collection until the following morning, he drove six miles into Coventry, where the nearest large sourcing office was located. On the way home, he stopped off at the Brooklyn pub, where he'd watched a bit of the motorcycling on TV and listened as the barman had shared jokes with the regulars. Two pints later, he drove home at around 10pm. He told police what had happened when he arrived home the previous evening. As I shut the front door, I got a whiff of cigarette smoke. This was strange as my wife and I don't smoke cigarettes. I saw the lounge door was partially open. I could see a light from the kitchen. The lounge was in darkness. I pushed the door open and took one step in, at which point I was grabbed by the arms from both sides. I could see there were two hands holding my arms on each side, and then a cloth was put over my nose and my mouth. I remember saying, what the bloody hell? I could smell something on the cloth that smelled acrid and dried my throat. My arms were pushed up behind me, and then the wall light directly behind me switched on. The dimmer light had been turned down. As the light came on, I saw a man wearing a clown's mask and a dark blue boiler suit holding Carol by the chin with his right hand. Her head was held under his right arm in a sort of headlock. In his left hand was a knife with the blade held to her throat. I saw that she was gagged with something and she looked petrified. This man said, keep quiet, do as you're told, get down on your knees. He had a soft Irish accent, which I won't attempt to do but it was a bit muffled because of the mask. I was struggling, trying to free myself. I was pushed down onto my knees. As this happened, I felt a blow to my stomach. I don't know who did it. I was starting to go woozy. They forced my head forward. I felt something being put on the back of my legs hard. The last thing I remember was looking down at the person's shoe to my right who was holding me. 
These shoes were black in colour, the lace-up type with thick black rubber soles. They were highly polished. I remember he was wearing black trousers. Gordon estimated that from the moment he stepped into the lounge to the point he lost consciousness, three or four minutes had elapsed. He woke the next morning tied to the refuse sack holder. He heard the answering machine pick up several calls and the postman arrive at about 8am. Distraught and in great pain, he struggled to free himself with no success until the police found him at 2pm. It looked like the gang knew that Carol Wardle was a key holder at the local Woolwich branch of the Building Society and the house had been the target. While Gordon was unconscious, the gang had taken Carol to where she worked and stolen the money. Maybe she'd seen too much of the gang, or maybe they just panicked as Carol was then killed and her body abandoned. Speaking to the Mirror newspaper, Gordon's dad Frank said, My son will probably turn in on himself now, thinking if only he hadn't gone for that drink. He was set upon straight away, but he only saw one man wearing a mask. He's in a terrible state. Doctors tell us he had a very rough night and is still in a state of severe shock. I dread to think what poor Carol went through. Whoever did this must have gone to extraordinary lengths to find their address. His wife Betty said, I rang up on the Sunday morning. They were both full of life, both laughing and joking as they cleared up. Carol was great. I couldn't have wished for a better daughter-in-law. I just don't know how Gordon will get on now. The police investigation was headed by Detective Superintendent Tony Bayliss of the Warwickshire Police Force. Straight away, there were a number of things that puzzled him about the case, especially about why a professional gang had murdered Carol, why they'd not taken their own equipment to kidnap Gordon, and why they'd done all of this for a relatively small amount of money. But his first task was to find witnesses, so he held a press conference to appeal for information and then staged a reconstruction. Gordon Waddell appeared at the press conference in a wheelchair, wearing sunglasses and visibly shaken. As he told his story, some of the onlookers were, well, they were a little bit surprised by his answers. When asked about his wife, his first instinct was to say that she always worked hard and she always did her best. Quite a strange response, don't you think? During the press conference, questions were put to Gordon about his previous conviction for grievous bodily harm. He responded that he didn't see how that question was relevant and reiterated that all he wanted was for his wife's killers to be found. Police also staged a reconstruction of Gordon's movements on the Sunday night before the murder. But at a very early stage, Detective Bayliss had doubts about Gordon's story and so he started to investigate deeper. The GBH convection referred to at the press conference was particularly disturbing. Wardle, as a 17-year-old student, was jailed for four years for wounding with intent after indecently assaulting and stabbing the wife of his science teacher. The attack itself was horrific as he lured the woman to a country lane when she had her two young children in the car. In a vicious 45-minute attack using a knife, Gordon assaulted both the woman and at one stage he punched her young son who tried to defend his mum. Luckily for the victim of the attack, an ambulance was on the scene within six minutes, 
but she still required nine pints of blood in a transfusion and was extremely lucky to survive. Gordon was charged with attempted murder, but this was eventually changed to grievous bodily harm. A Warwick court heard that the attack was wholly motivated by sex, with a strong degree of fantasy. At the time, Gordon Wardell was said to be obsessed by the actor Paul Newman, and during the attack he played out his Paul Newman infatuation. Graham insisted to police that Carol knew all about this episode in his life, which he put down to exam stress. No, really, exam stress. And so he would never forget what he had done. His combination to his suitcase was always his prison number. Police inquiries also revealed that Wardell was a regular user of the services of sex workers in nearby Coventry. Two of the prostitutes came forward to tell police that they recognised Wardell from regular visits he'd made to them. One said that he was a regular visitor following their first meeting in the red light district. She explained that Wardell liked to be driven away from the town to the open countryside where she tied him up with rope from the boot of his car and then he liked to be treated extremely roughly. She told police her last encounter with him had been a few months earlier when he only had £15 on him, the normal price was £50. But as he was a regular customer, she accepted this out of kindness and then masturbated him and talked dirty for about five minutes. Another sex worker told police she was taken to Wardle's house somewhere towards Nuneaton during the day. Gordon had referred to his wife as her and said she was at work. As police continued to delve into Wardell's past, it emerged that seven years earlier, a friend of Carol's had told her that she had seen Gordon going into a pub of low repute in Coventry. Carol wouldn't believe her and later challenged Gordon who denied it and the issue appeared to be forgotten. These encounters, along with the GBH conviction, showed police that Gordon was capable of living a dual life where he efficiently covered his tracks. It also showed a high level of planning, as he did in his job too in logistics, and it made police wonder whether he'd staged the whole scene himself, including killing his wife. So, though he told police that his marriage was everything to him, he was still living a double life with sex workers. And they discovered it was the same with his work history. He'd recently been made redundant and out of work for six months, but his whole work history was one of disappointment when Gordon wasn't able to make the impact he hoped and expected. Indeed, in his current role, his managers at Veng UK were actually in the process of discussing his poor work performance with him describing Gordon as incompetent and disengaged. Police wondered, was his whole life a series of deceptions? But although police had suspicions about Gordon, a note in the incident room read, it is one thing to have an opinion, it's another thing to have the facts which support it. So the police investigation picked up momentum as they examined these facts. When police talked to the ambulance staff who had taken him to hospital, they said that he was lacking the trauma symptoms they would have expected and his pulse rate and blood pressure were normal and also at the hospital he kept his appetite and he ate well. Doctors were also puzzled by the extent of his injuries. During the press conference he'd been in a wheelchair and he continued to use a walking stick although doctors didn't feel his injuries were severe enough to justify this. Police put him under surveillance 
and they were astonished to see that when he drove to Birmingham for an appointment, he happily walked in a shopping centre, browsing windows. But then he went back to his car and got out his walking stick and everything changed and he hobbled in a hunched up manner to the appointment. There were other inconsistencies. For example, during the police reconstruction of the night before the murder, Gordon had told them he spent time in the Brooklands pub, but none of the staff nor the customers remembered seeing him, and there was no record of him buying his favoured beer on the till roll. Police also placed some credence on the account of another sex worker, who clearly recalled that she was entertaining Gordon at her 15th floor tower block apartment that night. It stuck in her mind as she clearly remembered showing him her child's model collection. Officers were also puzzled about the way he'd been found tied and gagged in his home. He told police he'd been attacked by two men approaching him from the side as he had gone through the door. But the police didn't think there was enough room near the door for two men to stand or hide. He'd been found by police in his underpants, tied and gagged in the living room floor. It didn't make sense that then police found his clothes and shoes had been placed carefully to one side near where he was found. It just didn't fit with how a gang would act. The police officer in the reconstruction, who replicated his movements in his house, was chosen due to his close physical proximity to Gordon. But the detective was able to move freely around the floor of the house and shout loudly enough for his voice to be heard on the other side of the street. He was also quickly able to release himself with no external assistance. A forensics officer present found the house spotlessly clean and thought there was no way at all that a gang had been in the house. There was certainly no trace of the cigarette smoke reported by Gordon or any glove marks. He told police he was attacked from behind. But medical experts found that a punch could have caused the bruising on his chest. And there were also doubts about how he didn't need to go to the toilet once in his 16 hours of captivity. Was this even possible? Gordon claimed he'd been made unconscious by a drug given to him via a cloth that had been placed over his face. The drug had left him unconscious for several hours until police arrived the following morning. But there was no drug that could be administered this way that would sedate Wardle for more than a few minutes. At this time, the maximum time he could have been sedated for was seven hours, but that would have been by an injection. Then there were the crime scenes of Carol when she was found face up in the grass with one done up sandal nearby. Detectives again were confused. There were no marks on the ground to suggest that the sandal had been torn off in an attack, but there was now one done up sandal found at the body and one at the bank. This seemed way too much of a coincidence. But then the post mortem results gave police a real break as they showed that the contents of Carol's stomach contained quite a large meal and the rate of digestion showed she had died within three hours of eating it. This seemed to detectives to be the key breakthrough as if this was the case, this fitted with the story that Carol had Sunday lunch with her husband but also meant she was killed on the Sunday, not the Monday morning as claimed by Graham. The post-mortem also showed it would have been impossible for Carol to have been alive at 10pm when Wardle said he arrived home. This was enough for police, and at 7.30am, on Thursday the 20th of October, Gordon Waddell was arrested at his home. For three days he was interrogated, 
before appearing at Nanita Magistrate's Court on the Monday morning, charged with murdering his wife and robbing the Woolwich Building Society of £14,126. Detectives believed that Wardle had suffocated and strangled his wife at home before driving to the Building Society and raiding the safe using her security code and keys. He then dumped her body. Finally, he returned home and beat himself in the stomach before gagging himself with a ripped sheet from his garage and tying his hands and legs to a rubbish bin. It seemed as though Gordon may have been preparing the ground for a robbery at Carroll's work when police interviewed his work colleagues. They recalled how he told them that his wife was wary of an attack as she took the office keys home. He told another colleague that the spare wheel of Carroll's car had been stolen, but he hadn't reported it to the police in case it was a professional gang checking out his house. Detectives were unsure of his motive. It could have been money, as his wife's death meant that Wardell's mortgage and other debts were paid. He also received Carol's pension and a lump sum of £56,000. Or maybe Carol had confronted him after hearing whispers about his use of sex workers. Maybe she confronted him about his lack of success at work and how the successful man he tried to portray himself as was actually just a sham. Or maybe it was down to being unable to have children. The couple had not slept together for at least six months, and Gordon had refused to have fertility tests, despite Carol feeling so strongly about children. The trial of Gordon David Wardell was held at Oxford Crown Court. The prosecution, represented by Richard Wakeley QC, alleged that Wardell had killed his own wife, dumped her body and then staged an elaborate scheme to deceive and divert attention away from himself. But Wardell continued to maintain his innocence. Wakeley told the jury that he did not have to prove why Wardell killed his wife, saying, In the process of marriage there may be many motives. There may have been a heated argument, all sorts of reasons. The prosecution do not and do not have to, set out to prove a motive. We set out to prove his story is false. On the 7th of December, Wardell entered the witness box, and clearly emotional, he choked back tears as he told her the last time he'd seen Carol alive. He stuck to his story of being attacked and tied up, and said that when he heard of Carol's death, I felt as if my whole world had come to an end. At the end of a six-week trial involving 128 witnesses, the jury deliberated for nine and a half hours before finding Wardell guilty of killing his wife. Justice Creswell praised detectives for their efforts and told Wardell, You are an extremely dangerous, evil and devious man. You killed your wife in a brutal manner, then cynically attempted to escape detection, going to elaborate lengths to make it appear that your crime was the work of a gang of raiders. This murder was an outrage to your wife, her family and to everyone who knew her. There were gasps of yes from the public gallery when the judge announced his guilt and Carol's mum Joan burst into tears. Wardell, the six foot three inch tall fitness fanatic, looked pale and shook his head as he was taken down. On the 21st of December 1995, Gordon Waddell was sentenced to life imprisonment. The Home Secretary set his minimum tariff to 18 years. And despite Wardell maintaining his innocence and appealing against his sentence, 
he's still behind bars today. After the trial, Carol Waddell was described by John Stewart, CEO of the Woolwich, as very well respected and highly regarded, having worked for the company for 12 years. He also described her as the perfect employee. In the days after the murder, many local people left floral tributes at the front of the Woolwich branch in Nuneaton. Carol Wardell's funeral was held on the 13th of October 1994, attended by more than 200 of her friends and relatives, with the mourners led by a tearful Gordon. Following his conviction, Carol's mum Joan said, Carol will now be able to rest in peace. She loved life and she was full of life. To have it taken away in such a way was just terrible. So what do you make of what we've heard today? On two occasions, Gordon Waddell publicly wept for his dead wife. First during an appeal on television to catch the evil killers, and then again at her funeral. Yet even as his tears fell, and he talked of his terrible loss, he alone knew what it felt like to strangle his wife and then dump her body on the lonely roadside. I've used Paul Britton's excellent book, The Jigsaw Man, for some of the insight in this episode. His conclusion about the case, and he was very close to the inquiry, is that Gordon Waddell created an illusion about a successful life and his high capabilities as someone destined for great things. We speak a lot on this podcast about this, don't we? The image portrayed to the outside world compared to the reality. The reality here was a man unable to cope at work, who faked illness and changed jobs to bolster his own self-image. With Carol dead, Wardell knew that people would sympathise with his plight as a widow and how it would then give him an excuse for continuing to underachieve. As a bereaved husband, his problems at work would disappear and his secret life with sex workers would be safe. Murdering Carol wasn't such a huge leap for him. He'd already shown a willingness to use extreme physical violence. But what triggered it on that Sunday? Perhaps Carol confronted him about the sex workers or accused him of being a sham and failing at his job. Possibly, the day had been selected sometime earlier, as the episode with the stolen wheel which he told his work colleagues about suggests. Whatever the catalyst, he decided that today is the day. He sat opposite her all morning, telling himself that provided he didn't lose his bottle, she'd be dead by the afternoon. From what Britain knew of him, from the time he spent with him, he suspects that Wardell was probably very sweet and pleasant to Carol, rather than unloading the last of his venom. And then she was dead. I wonder how he felt as his plan was actually becoming reality. Sure, we can all fantasise about a large range of things, not necessarily murder, but a large range of things that are never going to happen. But just how does it feel the very moment that private thoughts are translated to those terrible actions? I must thank Elizabeth Essex again for bringing this story to my attention. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed putting the story together. Please head over to Facebook to join our Facebook group, which this weekend hit the dreaded 666, about as much fun as Leeds United in the FA Cup. Not the group, the group are great, I mean the number. (laughs) You know what I mean. The group's a fun place to chat about all aspects of UK true crime, 
not just crime podcasts. You'll be made very welcome. The only rule is that people are nice to each other and respect all producers of true crime content as even if their work isn't for us, we respect anyone that makes the effort. And if you'd like to support the show further, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you can find lots of exclusive content and help support the very existence of this podcast. As I said at the beginning, bonus episode 11 is out this week, probably on Friday. I will now leave you to head off to the HelloFresh website to get next week's food sorted. Remember, promo code TRUE. As I go back online to look at photographs of the distant memory that was the sun at Christmas. Until we speak again next week, take it easy. And remember my motto for keeping perspective. Nothing matters very much and most things don't matter at all. You know it makes sense. Well, on that final bombshell, it's cheerio for now from me. Speak to you next week.